This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening. Attention. Attention. Your gas guzzler kills. We have deflated one or more of your tyres. You'll be angry, but don't take it personally. It's not you, it's your car. We did this because driving around urban areas in your massive vehicle has huge consequences for others. Car companies try to convince us we need massive cars. But SUVs and 4x4s are a disaster for our climate. SUVs are the second largest cause of global rise in carbon dioxide emissions over the past decade, more than the entire aviation industry. The world is facing a climate emergency, according to the UN. Millions of people are already dying from climate change-related causes. Drought, hurricanes, floods, forced migration, starvation. So far, the impacts on you have probably been minimal. We need to take emergency action to reduce emissions immediately. We're taking actions into our own hands because our governments and politicians will not. Even if you don't care about the impacts on people far away from you, there are also consequences for your neighbours. SUVs cause more air pollution than smaller cars. SUVs are most like are more likely to kill people than normal cars in collisions. Psychological studies show SUV drivers are more likely to take risks on the road. SUVs are unnecessary and pure vanity. That's why we've taken the, this action. You will have no difficulty getting around with your gas without your gas guzzler, guzzler with walking, cycling, or public transport. Time on a Monday morning at 3CR. Whether you're streaming it, podcasting, or listening in the kitchen on that old AWA transistor, you're listening to Radical Radio 3CR 855 on the AM, on the AM dial. Many thanks to Amy Goodman and Democracy Now. 
we've got a bit of a show coming up when we're going to focus on one thing. One of our, I'm going to say, culture setters and cultural reference points for those of us of a certain age. We're going to be delving into the life of Keith Dunstan with Jack Dunstan. Morning, Jack. Glad to have you on board the tandem. Good morning, Val. Nice to be here. That's good. I'm just going to say I'm getting a little bit used to the microphones in here at the moment because we've changed around a little bit, but I hope everything's coming through loud and clear. That little screen at the top of the uh, show was from the tyre extinguishers. Direct action. It'd be interesting to see this is... um, this has happened a few times over the years. Jack, you're aware of this, aren't you? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, it could be a retaliation to the tax on the bully. <laughs> what do you think? I'd, um, I think... Um, oh, look, it's, uh, this is going to come up in the news item I'm going to do. There's um, a real swing and then a backlash against a lot of uh, road usage, changes to road usage, um, us having a serious look at what's going on. Um, and how, I've got to say, all over the world, the way the things are going, Matt, there's a huge swing, anti-protest swing with draconian laws put down. But it's a good way of actually just, I think, pigeonholing and isolating one thing without going into it. This is a group of cars that have gone from, what, 18% of new car sales to 52%. It's a huge uptake. And I think the Hilux is the most popular car sold in Australia. I oh, know, because it's still got a dirty engine. I'm not, I'm not going to get sidetracked here. Sorry about we, No, no. It's, um, it is a fascinating thing. And um, it's, uh, I find it's interesting talking to people about it because they're, um, it can be pretty um, uh, divisive, this question. Um, I think we've become, uh, like I said, direct action, especially when it's directed personally, which this seems to be taken as, but it's not about you, it's about your car, um, has touched on a lot of, um, I'm going to say, a lot of different sort of ideas about what we can do and what we can't do. Let's swing on to something a little bit. Let's swing on to something, the here and the now, and accept that that's, um, you'll see plenty of those cars on the way home. Um, a bike moment. I think, uh, Jack, I'll lead you into this. I'll go first. And I'm sorry to say this is another anti-car bike moment, which I don't usually do. Look, a friend from uh, my local park who's a cyclist, more a road cyclist, uh, recounted to me, a story the other day of which most cyclists in Melbourne will have had um, some experience. You're in the left-hand lane, double lane road at a pair of at a set of lights. You're in the bike box up the front on the left-hand lane. Across the intersection, there's probably 50 metres before the first parked car on the left-hand lane swings to one to one lane. You're sitting at the lights. Sometimes you're so attuned, you can nearly pick the make of the car from just the sound of it behind you. And you realise that as soon as those lights turn green, the car that's behind you is going to accelerate to get into the right-hand lane. And look, the my friend who was telling me the story, it was obviously 
there was something, sounded like there was something a little bit intentional about it. And um, I, um, I told her that the only known cure I knew for this was what I used to call a friend's, somebody called, told me was called the intended wobble. That was, if you took off just a hair's breadth before the lights turned green, and behaved like an inexperienced and very unsure about on your bike, you'd almost get an immediate reaction from the car behind. I'm not. I'm, I'm going to say Helen was. I think not too sure whether she was up to the um, to pulling this off, but it, it's actually one thing that can actually help in this one situation. Now, Jack, I need something more positive as a bike moment from you. Oh, look, I'm, I'm also a person who does the, the wobble. Yep. And, and it indicates to the person behind you, you may not be too sure of yourself, and they give you a wide berth. It, I don't know whether it's called direct action, but it's, um, it's quite effective. It, it is, actually. And it, um, it goes to the point, I think I've, we've all read many studies, the more professional or the better consistent you are riding a bike, the closer the car come, will come to you. Anyway, that's detracting from your bicycle moment. Oh, look, um, my memorable bicycle moment was about six months ago when Nick Cave um, <clears throat> was playing up at Hanging Rock and there was nowhere to get any accommodation anywhere near Hanging Rock for about 100 kilometres. Of course. Everything was booked up, Airbnbs going up to you know upwards of 1,000. And so my partner and I decided to camp on a small block of land, um, but we took our electric bicycle to get from Hanging Rock at one in the morning to the block of land. Perfect. And uh, electric bicycles, not so great on the mud. A little bit heavy. A little yep. bit heavy. And when you've lost battery, you're, you're pushing it. So um, <clears throat> I, I think the battery gauges on electric bicycles are a little bit dubious in what they say in terms of how many kilometres are left. Another disappointment in the the evolution of the bicycle. Go acoustic. <laughs> Look, we're going to catch up on just on. Well, there's not much news really, and I don't want to flood the program because we do want to get on the um, grill jack about his grandfather Keith. Look, just a couple of things um, for those who enjoy the ride from Williamstown uh, past Daltona and along that lovely pathway that. At the end of this year, they're looking to have finished that all the way to um, Point Cook. Um, so if you're a bird watcher, you probably know these trails down there, but it's lovely to get that all the way through. And if you've never ridden that trail, it is something quite special. And if you're a little bit tired on the way back, you can always get on the train on the way back, which makes it even better. And it is um, something really good, and it's good to know that that is going to be finished soon now we're going to be back after this quick break um, to talk about a place in the sun Yarrabug would like to thank our sponsor, Vacro's Second Chance Cycles, for their financial support. Second Chance Cycles is a fantastic community workshop that recycles bikes, trains people in bike mechanics, and sells bikes to the local community. If you have a healthcare card, they'll give you a bike free of charge. To find out more, search for Vacro online or drop into the underground car park, Harmsworth Street, Collingwood, any Tuesday or Thursday. 
In 200 years' time, Keith Dunstan's columns and books will be used as a primary source by scholars trying to understand our culture in the second half of the 20th century. It's from Michael Smith, former editor of uh, The Age, pre Peter Costello, commenting on a Keith Dunstan's career and his reflections and recordings of and zeitgeist of when he spent so much time commenting on it. Jack, um, do we we have a quick pricey of Keith's life before we kick into that those memorable primary sources? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so Keith was educated in a, he said, very much like Barry Humphreys, a very, very comfortable middle class, possibly dull environment in the eastern suburbs. <clears throat> uh, he went off... Uh, and was enlisted in the Air Force in the Second World War. Unfortunately, he forgot to reset his um, alto- altimeter on uh, his yep. plane, uh, which meant he was sort of uh, sent home. Um, I think that was an honourable discharge, but it probably saved his life because yeah. where he was stationed in <coughs> Labuan in, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> in Malaysia, they were yeah. looking at a land assault on Japan, which would have been pretty unpleasant. Uh, but he came back and worked as a copy boy at the Herald and Weekly Times uh, and worked his way up to writing copy and then um, became a journalist. And for about 32 years, he wrote a daily um, column in the, the Sun News Pictorial, now the Herald Sun, yep. um, which required 400 words, you know, five days a week. Uh, so he was a prolific writer. And on top of that, he wrote about 35 books. He wrote for television. He wrote for radio and he also wrote under a pseudonym for the bulletin which was a competing magazine that um what was the pseudonym again i'm trying to remember um, batman batman that's how it was so it was um a melbourneian's take on the sydney magazine the bulletin yeah um of course he got found out by his employer and um, marched into the office given a bit of a dressing down and he said please continue writing it i enjoy reading it there we go yeah And uh, throughout his career, because he always needed copy, um, he would invent um, skits and ideas that would help propel him and and give him something to write about the following week. Um, He started organisations such as the Anti-Football League, which in 1967 had more members than the Collingwood Football Club. Um, An extraordinary statistic to think today. It was excellent. What was that lovely symbol of square football? Square football. Yeah. Yeah, the symbol of a a ball that would not bounce. bounce. Uh, And as part of the Anti-Football League, you'd wear a little red badge on your lapel, and if you saw another person in the street wearing it, you knew you'd get an intelligent conversation. Um, Apologies to any football lovers out there, but... No, that's all right. I've got to ask the question. I mean, if Keith was alive today, what would he say of the dominance of the... Well, the anti-football, the AFL, actually, as it now stands. Oh, look, I I think we've got a lot more fragmentation of sport, and you can avoid football now. It used to be the front and back page of the newspapers and on all the television and radio stations, but now you can... There's a lot more variety, so you you do get a bit of respite now. Yeah. And um, he wrote for the Herald Sun. How many years was it? Um, oh, look, I think it was 32 to 36, but then he went on, after he retired, he wrote for The Age yep. uh, and continued to write 
books. He he really didn't stop. He was up at always up at five in the morning, yeah. tapping away at the typewriter of the computer. Early adopter of computers in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. Yeah, uh, I think it was pathological. He just had to write, mm-hmm. um, and part of this whimsy of having something to write about meant that he would start other organisations, some for fun and some seriously, and you know, including the National Distrust, which would uh, call for the immediate demolition of buildings because they were so ugly. Yep. Uh, but he was also founding member of the Bicycle Institute, yes. which then became the Bicycle Network. Yes. Bicycle Victoria, then Bicycle Network. It's had a couple of name changes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and that was, uh, I think that might have been the 1970s, 1980s, but it was really to... Uh, encourage more people to cycle, to consider cycling uh, as a viable mode of transport and to provide protections for cyclists um, and visibility. Yeah. To, uh, you know, so what year was this, the late 70s? Or I think so. Yeah. Like, someone will probably yeah. correct us. Um, look, the, up until that stage, we're, we're in an interesting stage of, of bicycle you know, uh, world at that time. Um, it was, I think, Keith's article, and remember, uh, I think about once a week, he used to publish a lovely detailed map of a tour to go around Melbourne. I've got to say, that's one of the things that I remember, the guy on, once you had that map from the Herald Sun, you could go on a day trip. Um, it was, uh, and then Bicycle um, Victoria, it was the first thing... Um, set up that actually didn't look at cycling as a sport. Uh, uh, his grandfather was a commuter nearly half his life, wasn't he? That's, r- <coughs> that's right. So he, he lived in southeastern suburbs and he would cycle into the Herald Weekly Times building, which is still still there today, and with yep. the big Herald Sun sign on it. Yep. Um, but he didn't always do that. He used to drive or take the train. Yep. Uh, but it all came about on a day in 1972... Uh, with a transport strike that he decided that maybe there are other ways to get to work. Ah. So he wasn't, he was a lifelong cyclist, but he only really took it up in his adult years when he was working. Uh, yeah. I think it was viewed at his time, you know, you turn 18, you get your driver's license, yep. you put the bike away and you never look at it again. And if you're wearing a suit and a bow tie, you certainly shouldn't be riding a bicycle. Definitely. Yep. So that changed the way he looked at those things. That's right. Yeah. So I've got I brought a couple of his books in. Yeah. Um, uh, one is one of his memoirs on cycling. I think we've got a, well, yeah, a yeah, day yeah. and a, yep. a couple of pages here. Yep. But this is his reflection on cycling um, from Chapter Seven: The Born Again Biker. And this is about that moment where he decided to cycle to work. The year 1972 was great for strikes. There was banking strike, a prolonged strike of the oil workers, an electricity strike, and at least four strikes involving public transport. Sir Henry Balty was the Victorian Premier, a man who did not give in easily to strikers. His most famous quote was during the teacher strike. They'd marched on Parliament House with their demands for better wages. The Premier's sympathetic response was this. If they can march up and down until their bloody well foot feet are sore, that's all I care for. Sensible householders worked out a survival kit. Number one was a jerry can of petrol in the garage to cope with the inevitable petrol rationing. Number two was a stock of sausages or chops so the barbecue could come into action when the power cuts made the stove useless. 
Number three was the supply of candles and maybe one or two good quality kerosene lamps. My brother was brilliant. My mother was brilliantly prepared. She couldn't wait for a strike so she could illuminate her house with candle power. She had too some lovely 19th century kerosene lamps and her living room looked lovely in the soft light. What would cover a cessation of public transport? Why not a bicycle? It must have been during the second transport strike of 1972. Malvern Star now went under the name, title of General Accessories and the manager was Bruce Small's old colleague, Alf Stumbles. I called Mr Stumbles and after I could borrow a bicycle for the duration of the strike. The name Malvern Star would be mentioned in my daily column, A Place in the Sun. The bicycle was delivered to the office of the Sun News Pictorial in Flinders Street, a Malvern Star Super SL 10-speed gears. Alf Stumbles explained the marvels of modern technology. Gears had come in since the 1930s. There were two chain wheels at the front and a sprocket at the back which had five gears. The gear lever on the left side moved the chain from the large sprocket to the smaller, and the gear lever on the right moved the chain across the five-gear cluster on the rear. These gave a choice of ten different gears. You must always be pedalling when you change gears, said Alf, otherwise it won't work and the chain could come off. This was new to me. The next day I set out from Central Park Road, East Malvern, where I lived, a distance to the city just over 12 kilometres. It was the second day of the strike and Sir Henry Balty had urged motorists to share cars with their colleagues so everyone could get to work and keep up productivity. Even so, cars were solid all the way down Turak Road, solid all the way along Alexandra Avenue, crawling at barely five kilometres an hour. The bicycle was the superior machine, moving between traffic lines as smooth as, at a smooth 15 kilometres an hour. It would be hard to underestimate the feeling of superiority and power as one left behind panting Nissans, Toyotas, Holdens and Fords. 35 minutes later, I was sitting at my desk in the office. Door to door, this was faster than I'd ever done it by train, tram or car. Going home was a revelation. The 10-speed gears really worked, utterly different from the old Sturmy Archer I'd grown up with. There was a long climb up from the Yarra via Williams Road, then Wallace Avenue to Turak Road. Easy, I thought. I was going like Oppie himself. Suddenly there was a cry from behind. Oh, move over, Grandpa. A little kid, gearless, moved past on his bike as if I was standing still. One has to get used to these humiliations. I've forgotten that he has a lovely, whimsy um, and delicate way of writing, doesn't he? he? He was a master. He had a black belt and damning with faint praise. Yes, and... I would himself included. I would say himself included. Yeah, yeah. and um, these humiliations you know, are all part of cycling. You know, we get routinely embarrassed when you've got. You know, you might have a three grand roll off, and someone on a fixie takes over. I'm well used to those to that nowadays. It took it didn't take me long to get used to it. Actually, it's not a um, it's not a battle. But anyway. Um, Interesting. So, and just after that, of course, we get the. If we're going time-wise, as uh, Michael Smith wants us to, and Lisa says, the the. Uh, so we're only four years away from the, um, um, you know, the um, petrol uh, shutdown, OPEC shutting down, and uh, what then became the ten-speed boom in bicycles. Yeah, and I think that was around about the time that a lot of trams were being pulled out as well. Yep. Uh, uh, 
there was a period where there was a lot of uh, oil around and they pulled out the trams for and replaced buses. Yep. Um, that might have been earlier, might have 50s, 60s possibly. Yeah, yeah. Certainly in uh, regional cities, yeah. But I suppose bicycles haven't had to compete with, um, you know, the cost of fuel. No. Uh, and Life After Bicycle Network. Was he sat on the board for the first couple of years, wasn't he? He did. He was the founding president. Um, yeah. But he always campaigned through his columns and his writing for, for more cycling. If someone was writing a book on, yep. on cycling in Melbourne, he would always attend the launch. He was often asked to launch many of these books. Yeah. Um, I think he la- launched Bill Court's um, um, oh my God! Uh, campaign campaign in um, in city of Moreland, Moreland. Uh, you know, about fifteen years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he would lend himself to any cause that would advance um, cycling all all over Melbourne, um, yeah. campaigning for bicycle lanes. Um, and after he died in two thousand and thirteen, we scattered his ashes on a bicycle path on the bank of the Arrow. Ah, perfect. So, so that was quite fitting. Have you got another reading for us? Oh, I guess I do. We've got to to have a bit more Keith, I think. We've got uh, got six minutes left. Yeah, so uh, back in the 1970s, he was still keen to find a column, and he said, I wonder if they can pay me not to be in Melbourne and to cycle at the same time. And he heard about the uh, Bicentennial um, uh, bike ride, which was a ride from West Coast to East Coast Coast in America in in 1976 to commemorate the bicentennial of the founding of the country. Uh, And this is a a tour that still exists today. Thousands of people ride it. uh, And it avoids any town with more than 50,000 people. So it really is a tour of small-town America. Um, So he undertook that with his partner, um, Mary Rose, my grandmother, uh, rode the whole thing with you know the insertable chamois in the tracksuits yep. you know, before bike shorts, he rode it in a tracksuit and RM Williams. You could only take one pair of shoes. Yep, you've got to carry everything yourself. Why not a pair of RMs? Um, but he noticed other people cycling cycling on tandems. So this is his perspective on tandems. After we returned to Australia, we became fascinated by tandem bicycles. The tandem has a number of advantages. For one thing. If you're travelling with your partner, there are no arguments about pace. Your partner cannot burn you off on the hills. You are compelled to travel at the same speed. For this reason, it's a gloriously sociable machine. You can chat all the time and the person who rides behind, technically known as the stoker, can give helpful advice. Backside drivers are not unknown on tandems. But there is one disadvantage. There is... There is much audience reaction from the side of the road. 99 people out of 100 make the same comment. Uh, You know the one at the back's not peddling? Mari, my wife, an utterly devoted stoker, had never taken kindly to this comment. Indeed, anyone who has ever ridden a tandem knows instantly when the partner has eased off the power. Yet tandem riding is a lovely experience, a thing apart as exhilarating as skiing or high-speed skating. Feed your stoker adequately... Give him or her plenty of muesli bars and you can get to speeds around 40 kilometres an hour. Most tandems have a deep and abiding problem. They require much to stop them. They build up extraordinary momentum and stopping them needs three and a half times the power retired to stop a normal bicycle. Their spokes break and they go through cotter pins as if they were peanuts. 
in late 1976, I decided it would be lovely to have a tandem that suffered none of these problems, a touring machine that would take us with our luggage over a thousand kilometres or more. I noticed there was a tandem shop in London, so I wrote to the owners a letter asking them to make me one. There was no reply. The English tended to be like that. I tried all over Australia to find a suitable tandem with no success. Then I saw an advertisement to a United States magazine. Mail order tandems with a difference. All you have to do is install your pedals, adjust the seats and ride them home from the airport. Yes, we ship to the nearest airport, wherever you are. The ad did say in small print that the average price for these tandems was about $1,200. Good tandems are made to measure. You must have the right frame size for the pilot up forward and the right size for the stoker down aft. Anyway, this story runs on for a little while. It's all yep. online, uh, keithdunstan.org, where we're putting his words. Oh, cool. Uh, though he... This is a story where he had a custom tandem made, yep. measured the inseam in his lounge room. Yep. Um, sent it off to Jack Taylor and... and ah, the Jack Taylor. The Jack yep. Taylor uh, team. And I yep. think there were three brothers yep. built those bikes. Yep. One built the frames, one painted, one assembled. Yep. Uh, and they sent it out to Australia. And uh, the cost kept going up. Uh. Uh, it ended up having a duty on import that was around about twice the price of the, of the bicycle. Um, which caused a lot of, uh, I suppose, marital disharmony as a result. <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave it there. It, it, yeah, yeah. it, is, in the, it is in the book uh, yeah. and online. Jack, where can somebody, uh, we've got a duck off, where can somebody find a bit more of this? You mentioned um, the oh, website. I'll, yeah. I'll link to it in the podcast. Thank you. So uh, Keith Dunson's got a Wikipedia page. It links through to his his website where we are um, scanning and uploading all the words from his texts and you can yeah. read stories about his cycling but also his memories of Melbourne which are a lovely time capsule of the 1950s and 60s. It is actually and it's, uh, it's an era of newspaper columnists who had a bit of depth and had a bit of longevity too at that time. Look that's all we've got time for. Next up is Shebop. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.